This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Dr. Robert Sapolsky is a Stanford neurobiologist investigating the relationship of stress to the onset and progress of human disease. His talk, given at the Senior Center of Palo Alto, is called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. Let's see, I don't know anybody here, so let me start off by asking you all sorts of personal questions about your health. Or better yet, let me, let me start off by asking you some questions about the health of family members of yours, people you know, etc. How many of you know somebody with a history of heart disease? Lots of hands. History of ulcers? History of high blood pressure? History of cancer? History of strokes? How many of you know somebody, some family member, who has a history of leprosy? Any lepers among your family members? Any leprosy? How many of you have got a family member where when you get together at Thanksgiving, you could just tell they're having problems with dysentery? Lots of dysentery in your family? Not much. How about, how about that distant cousin, the one who shows up and you just know this person has liver flukes and intestinal parasites? A lot of that? Any of that in your families? Probably not. Probably not. And in that regard, you're absolutely unlike any other mammals running around on this planet. None of us worry about scarlet fever. None of us worry about smallpox. None of us worry about getting malaria when the rainy season comes. Very few of us had mothers die in childbirth, and none of us are malnourished. And in that regard, we're unlike any other mammals walking around on this planet. We're unlike our ancestors. We're unlike people growing up in the developing world right now. What we have is the luxury of Western disease. We don't have the infectious diseases anymore, with the exception of AIDS. We don't have the diseases of poor hygiene, poor nutrition. What we have instead is the luxury in Western societies that we slowly go to hell over 80 or 90 years. And that, was, that is what Western disease is about now. A completely different pattern of disease, slow accumulation of damage over time. Remarkable change. Just to give you a sense of this, 90 years ago, turn of the century, what do you think were the leading causes of death in the United States? Guesses? Infectious disease right up there. Pneumonia was number two. What else? Influenza, number one on the list. All sorts of things, respiratory diseases we don't worry about. Childbirth, if you were female in 1900 and wanted to be very, very reckless, you, were, you got pregnant. That was one of the most dangerous things you could do with your body. Leading cause of death for young women, childbirth. No one dies of childbirth anymore. No one dies of the flu. Completely different patterns of disease. 1918, worst winter of World War I, people being killed in trenches all over Europe. And statistically, if you were sent off to war that winter, your chances of surviving were better than if you got the flu that winter. Eight million war deaths that year, 25 million civilian deaths due to the flu. Nobody dies of the flu anymore. We die of completely bizarre, strange diseases. 1920, the entire medical school class, Washington University School of Medicine, was marched out of the classroom and into the clinic to see this incredibly rare case of lung cancer. Nobody had lung cancer then. Nobody lived well enough or long enough to get the diseases that panic us now. Cerebrovascular disorders, heart disease, cancer, Alzheimer's disease, adult onset diabetes. These are diseases that our ancestors didn't worry about. What we have now is the ecological luxury that we have diseases that slowly build up over time. And this is how we get sick in Western societies. What's occurred over the years is not just the recognition that these disease patterns have changed, but medicine has come to recognize the diseases that get us sick, the diseases that panic us at 2 in the morning, these are diseases that can either be caused by or be made worse by stress. And it's in this regard that the concept of stress is absolutely critical to emphasize. In Western societies, it's not that we have more stressful lives than anybody else does. We have the luxury to finally pay the price. And that's what Western disease is about. Okay, what do I mean by stress? 
If I'm talking about stress for 99% of the beasts on this planet, I mean something very specific. You're a zebra. Some lion has leapt out, ripped your stomach open, your intestines are dragging in the dust, and you still have to get out of there. Or you're a lion who's half starved to death, and if you can't manage to chase after a zebra and catch it, you're not going to survive the night. Short-term physical emergencies. It's in that context we can have a first definition of stress, some term that we all got back in junior high school biology and probably haven't thought about since, homeostasis. Remember homeostasis, it's this whole notion that your body has an ideal temperature, an ideal amount of sugar in the bloodstream, an ideal everything, you're in homeostatic balance. A stressor is anything in the outside world that knocks you out of homeostatic balance. And the stress response is what you do with your body to reestablish homeostatic balance. That's all you need to know about this whole business if you're a zebra. If you're human, though, you've got to expand the definition in a very critical way. A stressor can be when you've been knocked out of homeostatic balance. In addition, a stressor can be when you think you're just about to be knocked out of homeostatic balance. And if it turns out you're right, that's wonderful. Hooray for you. You have a brain. You can see an emergency coming in advance. You can speed up your heart in anticipation, getting ready to save yourself. That's a wonderful thing in that circumstance. On the other hand, if you think you're about to be knocked out of homeostatic balance, and you really aren't, and you think that way all the time, we have a way to describe you. You're being neurotic or you're being anxious, or you're being paranoid, or you're being hostile, and you're being profoundly human. Nobody else thinks that way. Hippos don't understand taxes. Hippos don't get nervous about mortgages. They don't worry about blind dates. Hippos don't get what the big deal is when they look at humans. The single critical fact about us and stress-related disease is we take a system in our body that's evolved forever for dealing with a 30-second emergency where you have to run across the savanna, and we turn it on for 30 years worrying about Social Security. And if you do it chronically, you get sick. That's the central fact about stress-related disease. We turn it on long-term for psychological reasons, and that's not what it was meant for. This is the centerpiece of the whole field. Now, the person who discovered this, the person who first appreciated this notion that there's something you do with your body if you're a zebra, if you're a lion, if you're nervous, if you're worrying about the ozone layer, if you're having physical stress, if you're having psychological stress, you turn on the same exact stress response, and if it goes on for too long, you get sick. The person who first got this notion, this was about 60 years ago, an Austrian physician, a man named Hans Selye, and he was pretty much the father of this whole field. And basically, this entire field of stress physiology started because Selye was very smart and very intuitive and very insightful and really, really bad at handling laboratory rats. This is how the field began, let me tell you. Okay, Selye was a young assistant professor at the time. He was starting off, he was at McGill University up in Montreal, and he was just beginning his research career, and he was looking for something to study. And some chemist down the hall had isolated something or other in somebody's pancreas, and nobody knew what it did, and Selye decided he was going to study this stuff. He was going to figure out what this pancreatic stuff does to the body. So, you know, he gets a whole bucket full of this pancreatic stuff, and he brings it over to his lab, and he starts injecting rats. And as it turns out, he was not very good at this. So he's injecting the rats, and he's dropping the rats and chasing the rats, and they're chasing him, you know, half the morning with a broom, getting them out underneath the sink and that sort of stuff. Months of this go by. And at the end of that time, Selye examines the rats, and he discovers something absolutely amazing, which was all of the rats had stomach ulcers. <laughs> all of the rats had stomach ulcers. They all had huge adrenal glands, and their immune systems had shriveled away to nothing. Selye was delighted. He had just discovered the effects of this pancreatic stuff on the body, which was it gives you peptic ulcers and big adrenals and atrophy of the immune system. Okay, fortunately at this point, he did what you're supposed to do if you're a careful scientist. He ran a control group. Rats that didn't get pancreatic stuff, instead injecting them with saline. So he's in there injecting them every day and dropping them and chasing them. They're chasing him. And, you know, months of this go by, at the end of which he examines the rats and... 
all of them have stomach ulcers, and they've all got huge adrenal glands and no immune system left. Okay, your average scientist gives up at this point and goes into business, but Soye thought through this, and you know, he thought about this, and he realized, okay, this experiment doesn't make any sense, it didn't work, what's going on here? I'm seeing the exact same effect in the experimental and the control animals. What's going on? And he thought through it and said, I'm very, I'm absolutely inept at handling laboratory rats, Maybe that's got something to do with it. Maybe what I'm seeing is some kind of non-specific response of the body to generalized unpleasantries. And what he set about doing was systematically exposing rats to generalized unpleasantries. He put some of them up on the roof of the building during the winter, to others in the boiler room, others loud music, others in a room with a cat, that sort of thing. And all of them got stomach ulcers and big adrenals and no immune system. We know exactly what Sawyer had discovered. He discovered the tip of the iceberg of stress-related disease. And he was the person who took this term from metallurgy, describing torsional strain on metals, and he said, what's going on here is these animals are under stress. And this was the start of the whole field, this recognition that whether you're too hot or too cold, your body does certain things that are absolutely in common, and if you do it for three minutes or three hours, it saves your neck. And if you do it for three months or three years, it gets you sick. This was the centerpiece of the whole field. And the thing is, at the time, everybody thought he was crazy. Everybody in physiology thought this was the stupidest thing they'd ever heard. For a simple reason, if you're trained in physiology, what you're trained to think of is your body comes up with a very specific solution to a very specific problem. If you're too hot, your body does totally opposite things than if you're too cold. What's this crazy stress response that you do the same thing with your body if you're too hot, you're too cold, you're a zebra, you're a lion, or you're worrying about taxes? Why should your body do the same thing in all those cases? If you think about it, it turns out it actually makes a great deal of sense. If I could have the first slide, it makes a great deal of sense whether you were that zebra or that lion, if you were going to save your neck, there's certain things you have to do that's exactly in common. First thing is, you need energy. Not energy for next spring, not energy stuck in your fat cells for some long-term project. You need energy right now in your circulation to hand to your muscles to get you out of that mess. And a hallmark of the stress response is you mobilize energy. It's exactly the same thing as you go to the bank, you empty out your savings account, you need it all as cash. You need it right now to get through this emergency. So a first step of the stress response, you mobilize energy. The second thing you do is you want to deliver that energy. You want to deliver it as rapidly as possible to the muscles that are going to save your neck. You increase your cardiovascular tone. You increase your heart rate, your blood pressure, your breathing rate, all of this designed to get that sugar, get that oxygen, and deliver it to those thigh muscles as fast as you can, get you moving across the savanna you mobilize your cardiovascular system. The third set of things you do make a lot of sense as well, whether you are that zebra or that lion. You turn off long-term building projects. And this makes lots of sense. You know, there's a tornado due this afternoon. This isn't the day you repaint the kitchen. You don't know if there's going to be a kitchen tomorrow. You don't do the long-term stuff until you know there's a long-term. Turn off the long-term building projects. The first one you do is you turn off digestion. If you're that lion running after the zebra, you haven't had breakfast that day anyway, so you don't need to digest. And if you're that zebra, there's not enough time to digest. If you're going to get energy, you're going to get it from your liver. You're going to get it from your fat cells. Digestion takes hours, and it doesn't come cheap. Turn it off. You can't afford to do it. Stop digesting. And we all know the first step in this pathway. You get a little bit stressed, for example, speaking in public, and your mouth gets dry. You've stopped secreting saliva, the first step in this whole cascade of turning off the digestive system. The next thing you do during stress is you turn off growth and you turn off reproduction. Incredibly expensive, optimistic things to do with your body, especially if you're female. And the logic is you just can't afford it. It's an emergency. You're running for your life. The lion's coming right after you. is two steps behind you. And you know, basically, ovulate some other time. Don't do it right now. Grow antlers tonight. Reach puberty tomorrow. Don't bother right now. It's an emergency. Turn it off. And a hallmark of the stress response is the minute you are stressed, 
growth hormone levels go down in the bloodstream, every sex hormone on earth disappears from the circulation, you got better things to do. Don't worry about it now. Very interestingly, another system you turn off during stress is your immune system. And that makes lots of sense as well. Immunity is essential to have. Just look at somebody with AIDS. You have to have an immune system. It will spot some tumor that otherwise will kill you in six months. It makes antibodies that are going to help you in a week. It's going to do nothing, though, in the next 30 seconds when you're running away from the lion. And once again, it doesn't come cheap. You pay, pay a fortune for your, your immune system. You can't afford it now. Turn it off. So another feature of stress is you suppress your immune defenses. Finally, you're running for your life. The lion's coming after you. It wouldn't hurt to think a little bit more clearly during an emergency. Your mind gets sharper with the onset of stress. You hear things more sensitively. You smell things. All of your sensory systems get better. Memory gets a little bit better during stress. In the right setting, we all know exactly where we were when Kennedy was shot. We remember that. We can't remember where we were one day before that. Very aroused circumstances, you remember better like it was yesterday. And your sensory systems get better as well. We all know an example of that. You're sitting there and you're watching some frightening movie. You're sitting there, it's, it's late at night, you're watching this movie, it's quiet, this very suspense-filled part, and some car backfires two blocks away and you jump out of your chair. You get very sensitive to sensory information when you're stressed, when you're vigilant. So look at everything happening on the left. This is exactly what you want to do with your body if you were that zebra or you were that lion. You're mobilizing energy, you're delivering it where it's needed as rapidly as possible, you're turning off the unessentials, you're thinking more clearly exactly what you do to need to save your neck. And all you have to do to see that demonstrated is look at any of the number of diseases, there's a few of them, where people are not able to turn on the stress response. They cannot do the stuff on the left. For example, something called Addison's disease, a much more obscure disease called Scheidt-Rager syndrome. These are diseases where people cannot turn on the stress response. These are not people who are more at risk for diabetes. These are not people who are more at risk for Alzheimer's disease or cancer. These are people who go running for the commuter bus one morning and drop dead from hypoglycemic shock. Important lesson, everything on the left tells us if you're going to go running across the savanna or if you're going to go running for a commuter bus, you'd better be able to turn on the stress response. The first punchline, everything on the left. That's mostly what you need to know if you're a zebra. If you're us, though, what you need to know about mostly is the stuff on the right. What if you turn on the same exact stress response for much too long of a time? What if you turn it on for purely psychological reasons? Essentially what happens is everything you're doing with your body on the left is damaging, it's stupid, it's inefficient, but you've got to do it because it's an emergency. And if for psychological reasons you decide every single day is an emergency, you're going to pay a price in the long run. Very first line, if you constantly mobilize energy, you never store it. For one thing, one of your main storage sites for energy in your body wastes away, your muscles. Muscles are a wonderful place to store protein, and individuals who are chronically stressed, muscle mass goes down, muscles atrophy, you suffer from myopathy. In addition, for very complex reasons, you get exhausted. Not just because, oh, you're under stress, you're not sleeping very well. When you're chronically stressed, you're wasting most of your energy putting it in the storage sites and taking it back into the circulation and putting it back and back and forth, you pay a price, you lose lots of the potential energy that way. In addition, if you are chronically stressed, you are more at risk for a very common disease amongst us, adult onset diabetes. Very common amongst us, it didn't exist with our great-grandparents, it doesn't exist in the developing world, it's a disease of living in Western societies and living well. It's not aging, it's a disease of aging in certain settings, and it's a disease that's made worse by stress or can be caused by stress in the first place. So you get in trouble in that way. How about the next line, your cardiovascular system? Obviously, if you're running across the savanna trying to get away from a lion and your blood pressure is 180 over 140, you're not suffering from hypertension. You're saving your life. On the other hand, if your blood pressure is 180 over 140 every time you think about taxes, you're not saving your life. You're being hypertensive. 
And if you do that on a regular basis, you will get damage to your cardiovascular system. Chronic elevation of blood pressure, stress-induced hypertension. What that most gets you into trouble with is, after a while, you begin to damage the surface of your blood vessels. And that's exactly the place that fat and glucose and cholesterol loves to stick to and start forming plaques and clogging up your arteries. And where's the fat and glucose and cholesterol coming from? That's exactly what you're mobilizing in the first line. So you get into trouble in that way. How about the next category? Digestion. If you're chronically stressed, you're at risk for the most famous of all stress-related diseases, stomach ulcers, peptic ulcers. And in the last few years, we've gotten a great deal of insight as to how that works. It turns out there's a bacteria that can give you ulcers a bacteria that's found in the stomachs of some individuals, and it can give you ulcers. These bacteria can cause holes to form in your stomach walls. So why does stress make that worse? When you're under stress, you suppress your immune system, and the bacteria can start dividing like crazy, and you got yourself an ulcer. In addition, if you're under chronic stress in your digestive system, you are at risk for the most common stress-related disease there is, which is colitis. Colitis or irritable bowel syndrome, that's basically a technical way of saying you get your bowels in an uproar. And 75% of us will at some point or other in our lives. A lot of irritable bowel syndrome is an inflammatory autoimmune disease, but a lot of it is a stress-related disease, and it's extremely common. Okay, let me tell you how irritable bowel syndrome works. Here's what it's about. It comes down to how strange your small intestines are compared to your large intestines. Small intestines, wonderful organs, extremely exciting part of your body. Because with your small intestines, what you can do there is you can absorb nutrients out of them and you can put them back in and absorb and back and forth, and it's great. You could just spend all day long doing this with your small intestines. Your large intestines, totally boring. The minute stuff gets into your large intestines, you can't get any nutrition out of it anymore. No more nutrient potential. All you're doing is getting some water back so you don't shrivel up every time you go to the bathroom. 22 feet of this, not very exciting. So what do you do during stress? We've seen the logic already. During stress, you turn off your digestive system. You stop secreting saliva. Your stomach stops churning. Your small intestines stop churning. Everything shuts down right up to the border between your small intestines and large intestines. Something very different happens in your large intestines. Think about this. Whatever's in your large intestines, you're not going to get any nutritional value out of it. It's just sitting there, all of that, and you suddenly have this choice. You're running across the savanna, the lion's coming after you, and you can run with your life, with or without five pounds of dead weight sitting down there in your intestines. And suddenly it makes a whole lot of sense to get rid of the stuff. And that's sufficiently well known that in this country, when people are executed, they're executed in diapers people lose control over their bowels when they're very, very stressed. That's this paradoxical feature of the system. During stress, you shut down the small intestines, but your large intestines start churning like crazy. So where does colitis come from? You're tooling along. Life is fine, no problem. You're churning with your small intestine. You're churning with your large intestine. Everything's terrific. You're having a great day. Something stressful occurs. What do you do? You turn off your small intestine, and you turn on your large. End of stress, you go back to normal. Stressor again, turn off the small intestine, turn on the large. End of it, go back to normal. More stress, more stress, and at some point, it's stressful enough of a period that things get uncoordinated, and you're doing wrong things at the wrong time. Basically, colitis is a problem with choreography. You've got your small and large intestine out of whack, and the net result is, if they're both active at the same time, every time you eat a meal, you get gas, you get the runs, whatever. If the net result is both of them are turned off at the same time, you're constipated. Very, very easy for this to occur. 75% of us get this at some point or other. Okay, so that's one way in which you can get into trouble. How about growth? Well, if you grow for a living, chronic stress is not a good thing. If you're a young organism, if you're a developing, growing child, all you are is one big long-term planning building project. All you do is grow. And if every day you're sitting there saying, not today, today's not a good day for it, you will pay a price in the long run. And there's this absolutely crazy pediatric endocrine disorder where kids stop growing 
for purely psychological reasons. And it's called stress dwarfism, psychogenic dwarfism. And it's a disease where you get children who are years behind the normal growth rates and they have no disease, they don't have parasites, they're not malnourished. You look in their bloodstream, they have no growth hormone. You give them synthetic growth hormone and they don't grow. And you check around in these kids' backgrounds and it turns out they have something horribly stressful going on. And the amazing thing is, if you get them out of that stressful setting, the technical term for this is, if you do a parentectomy on them, if you get them out of the stressful setting, they start growing again. It's absolutely wild. They will recover from it. It's a very rare disease. This is not a disease that you see where every year or two the parents get transferred and they move to a new town and the poor kid has to pick up and leave and go to a new place. That's not when you see stress dwarfism. This isn't a disease that you see when the parents are having this horrible hostile divorce and neither of them want the child, that sort of thing. You don't even see it then. You don't see stress dwarfism until you are seeing absolute major league psychopathology. This is when the police and the social workers come and they break down the door of an apartment and they find some child locked up in the dark in a closet, fed on a tray of food underneath the door. Absolute nightmare situations. And the amazing thing is, if you get the kid out of that setting, they begin to grow again. Wonderful paper a couple of years ago showing this. This was a child brought to New York Hospital with a case of stress dwarfism from a very psychologically abusive setting and put instead into this foster home. And the child became very attached to this one nurse there and this was obviously like the first normal relationship in the child's life. And what they showed in the study was when the child first came into the foster home, zero growth hormone in the bloodstream. Two months later, very attached to this nurse, normal levels of growth hormone. The nurse goes on vacation. At the end of that one week vacation, growth hormone is back down to zero. The nurse comes back from vacation three days later, growth hormone levels are back returned to normal. Think about this. The rate at which this little boy was depositing calcium in his leg bones was a function of how secure he felt about being loved in the world. That's absolutely wild to think that our bodies can work that way. They work that way. We're exquisitely sensitive to emotional factors like that, even in how we grow. And the bizarre thing is you look and there's all sorts of wild examples of stress dwarfism throughout history, kids in war zones, kids in civil wars. A research assistant of mine and I think we have enough evidence by now to argue that the kids in the Japanese-American internment camps during World War II, that they suffered from stress dwarfism, and there's good evidence for that, I think. All sorts of cases. Let me tell you, though, about the single creepiest case of stress dwarfism I've ever heard of. And if you don't get the willies from this, you have no imagination. Okay, here's the case history. If you ever read in lots and lots of endocrinology textbooks, you'll notice an awful lot of these textbooks in the chapter on growth hormone when discussing stress dwarfism, they have quotes from Peter Pan. This weird pattern, they'll have a quote about Peter Pan, they'll have some snide comment about Tinkerbell. This is something I just saw for years in these textbooks, and I had no idea why. Finally, one day I found an explanation for this, and this was a chapter on growth hormone and psychological regulation of growth, talking about stress dwarfism, and it gave the following case history. It talked about a small boy, an eight-year-old boy, growing up in Victorian England in the 1870s, and this was a boy who one day saw his beloved older brother, his 12-year-old brother, killed in front of him in some horrible accident. Devastated by this. This was his only other sibling, and the father was kind of non-existent, was never around, and the mother in this Victorian melodramatic state took to her bedroom, closed down the shades, and got into bed for the next 23 years. Very dramatic Victorian stuff then. So you've got this poor child being raised basically by himself. Horrible scenes. He comes into the mother's bedroom with a tray of food, and the mother is saying, Oh, David, David, is that you? David, the dead son. David, is that you? Have you come back to be my child? David, oh, it's only you. The little boy growing up being only you. 
Apparently, the only thing the mother ever spoke to him about was this idea she grasped onto, which was if David had to die, at least he died when he was a little boy. He was perfect. He didn't grow up. He wasn't one of those boys who grow up and don't need their mother anymore. He'll always be my little boy because he didn't grow up. He didn't grow up. And this kid heard this. This kid heard this with a vengeance. Even though there was no evidence of disease, no malnutrition, nothing, he stopped growing at that point. He lived to be 60 years old. He was 4 foot 10 as an adult. Confirmed after he died on autopsy, he never reached puberty. His testes were undescended. Total functional case of stress dwarfism. And then the book chapter concludes by teaching us that as an adult, this was the author of the much beloved children's classic, Peter Pan. This was J.M. Barry, the man who wrote Peter Pan absolutely wild psychological history to this individual. By 1910, he was the most widely read author in the English language, which in and of itself is amazing to think about. And all he did was crank out book after novel after play about boys who die and come back as ghosts and marry their mothers and, you know, all sorts of stuff like that. And he just spent the rest of his life working this out, not very successfully. He repeatedly got into trouble with the law for doing stuff with little boys as an adult and all sorts of problems, and this man spent the rest of his life trying to work through this trauma and not very successfully. So think about that the next time we think about Mary Martin flitting around the stage or that sort of thing. Really disturbing. Okay, what else can I disturb you with here? More aspects of growth. What do we do with growth? Most of us don't grow anymore. What we do with our growth hormone is we have to work harder and harder to stay in the same place. We use growth hormone to repair our bones, that sort of thing. And, you know, that's not very exciting unless you plan to become bow-legged. Normally, you know, growth hormone sticking new calcium into your bones, this isn't very thrilling. We could immediately guess what happens during stress. You're running for your life, the lion's coming after you, and the logic is, you know, don't worry about your bones right now. Recalcify your bones tonight. Don't bother. So a feature of stress is you turn off recalcification of bones. So what happens if you're chronically stressed? You chronically fail to put calcium in your bones. Your bones begin to weaken. They get thinner. They get more brittle. Maybe they're more subject to fractures, that sort of thing. That would suggest that chronic stress causes osteoporosis. And up until about five years ago, the consensus in the field was if you're really, really stressed, you kind of get into the ballpark of osteoporosis. You don't really get a full-blown version of it. That was the consensus in the field until five years ago. You just get near it. But about five years ago, somebody did a very radical revolutionary experiment that totally changed the way everyone thought about everything. And what this person discovered was sometimes if you want to find out something useful in science, you should study women instead of men because you get a different answer. Here's what happens if you're male. If you're male and you're chronically stressed, two things go wrong. You get high levels of a certain stress hormone and growth hormone levels go way down. And when you put those two pieces together, you kind of get the first hints of osteoporosis. If you're female and chronically stressed, Three things go wrong. High levels of that stress hormone, low levels of growth hormone, and in addition, your estrogen levels go way down. And as lots of you know, estrogen is a very useful thing to have in your bloodstream to hold off osteoporosis. The whole logic of postmenopausal estrogen replacement to delay osteoporosis. And it turns out if you were very stressed, for example, a female primate who's socially stressed, her estrogen levels go down to zero. And when that happens, you're more likely to actually get osteoporosis. Chronic stress and females can get osteoporosis. So you get into trouble in that way. Let's see, what else? If you're chronically stressed and you're female, your reproductive system eventually pays the price. 30 seconds, you can afford to be stressed. Three minutes, three hours, you can be stressed. Weeks or months, you can't do that without paying a price there. Cycles become irregular, they become longer, they stop altogether, stress-induced amenorrhea, and that's seen in every species looked at amongst females. Stress disrupts cycles very effectively. Amongst males, what you see is testosterone levels go way down during stress. Take some guy and anesthetize him for surgery and slice into his belly with a scalpel, and 30 minutes later, testosterone levels have gone down. 
take some guy and, you know, a medical student during exam period, very stressful, testosterone levels go down, a male baboon who's being stressed by social competition, down, down go testosterone levels. Here's one of the most interesting studies to show this. Guys in the Marines, thank God I've never been in the Marines, so I have no idea what this is like, but it's apparently extremely stressful, I am told, and in this one classic study in the 1970s, they looked at guys in Marine boot camp, which is incredibly stressful, awful couple of months of training, and they got blood samples from these guys, and it turns out guys who just joined the Marines have the testosterone levels of choir boys in the Vatican. Like, zero testosterone. It goes down to next to nothing. The whole system shuts down very effectively. Stress will disrupt all sorts of reproductive behavior in both sexes. And what you wind up seeing is the remarkable figure in this country, for example, 60% of the men who go to doctors complaining about reproductive problems, it turns out there's no identifiable disease, it's psychogenic, it's stress-related. This is a very, very sensitive part of our bodies to stress. Where else can you get in trouble? The immune system. The immune system, if you are chronically stressed, and you chronically suppress immunity, are you more likely to get infectious diseases? And once you get them, are they going to be worse? This is one of the hottest topics in all of biology these days. This is an area called psychoimmunology. The whole notion that what's going on in your head has something to do with how well your body resists disease. And it's a very controversial area. What is certain at this stage is the boring stuff is for real. If you're under lots of stress, the common cold becomes more common. Lots of stress and you will get more of flus, more nose colds, things of that sort. What's not at all clear is the much more exciting end if there's a link between stress and cancer. Very, very controversial field. At this stage, the safest thing, the most responsible thing to say is if there's a link, it's a very, very weak one. There's not much of a connection. Amid all the different diseases I'm putting up on the right and all the different things to worry about, the link between stress and cancer is the weakest. That's not one that needs a whole lot of attention. It's way down there on the list. And unfortunately, there's a lot of healthcare professionals out there who make totally inexcusable livings selling people on the idea that cancer is a stress-related disease, that you can cure cancer with the right type of stress management. And unfortunately, there's no scientific evidence for this whatsoever. It's basically criminally negligent that these people do this. And this is something we all should certainly be on guard for because it's a natural thing to want to feel horrifying, frightening disease, here's an explanation, here's a cure. Unfortunately, it's not that simple at this stage. That's probably not an area where this works. Okay, finally, the final category. It turns out the same hormones that you secrete during stress and get into your brain to make you think more clearly, if you're chronically stressed, those same hormones can damage your brain. Those same hormones are capable of killing neurons, brain cells, and it's an area of the brain that's relevant to learning and memory. The same area of the brain that's damaged in Alzheimer's disease, and this is what my laboratory works on, how does stress damage neurons in the brain? And what we wind up seeing essentially is, in rats and monkeys, we're just beginning the human studies, what we see is the total amount of stress you are exposed to over your lifetime acts as a pacemaker determining how much neuron loss you get in this part of the brain as you age, how much memory loss you get. And what that begins to explain is a fact that we all know some of us, by the time it's age 90, some of us are still running marathons and biking with grandkids, and some of us at age 90 have been 30 years in the grave tremendous individual differences, a whole topic referred to these days, I'm sure you've heard about, this whole notion of successful aging. There's lots and lots and lots of us out there who at age 90 are running marathons and conducting symphonies and things of that sort. There's lots of variants of very successful aging, tremendous individual variation, and this is one realm in which you see this critical punchline Obviously, the way you live your life over the decades has something to do with what prices you pay at the end. And this is one realm in which this occurs. So we get a second punchline here. The first one on the left, if you were that zebra, if you were that lion, you'd better be able to turn on the stress response or else you're not going to survive. 
If you're us, though, if you turn on the stress response for too long, if you turn it on for psychological reasons, you will pay a price. And the diseases we get in Western society, the diseases on the right side of the column, those are the diseases of chronic psychological stress. Okay, if you look at this, basically you should be depressed as hell. I mean, if you look at all these diseases, if you're a stress physiologist, after a while it seems like a miracle that any of us are still functioning. I mean, look at all the different things that can go wrong with you. But the thing is, most of us are still functioning just fine. Most of us have not collapsed into puddles of stress-related disease. Instead, we cope. We cope, and some of us are very good at coping. Why do some bodies and some psyches deal with stress better than others? This is a critical question to focus on. And essentially, what it's asking is, why do some of us respond to psychological stress differently than others? Obviously, if we're gored by an elephant, all of us are going to feel upset. We're all going to have a stress response. But when it comes to psychological stressors, there's much more variability. A critical fact about humans and stressors. Guaranteed, the thing that would give you or me an ulcer is the thing that somebody else would pay money to get to do. This is a critical feature about humans, this individual variation when it comes to psychological stress. What is it that makes psychological stress stressful for some of us? You would think this is a very hard thing to answer, but it turns out there's some very specific elements which determine whether or not some physical stressor is going to be stressful or not, psychologically the way you perceive it. And the next slide summarizes what these critical variables are. I apologize if this is not too clear. I'll talk you through this. Okay, well, we see on top that first bar is showing a rat that is getting chronically stressed. This is a rat in a cage getting mild electric shocks, the type you would get scuffing your foot on the carpet. If you do it repeatedly, the rat has a stress response. Its blood pressure goes up. Its heart rate goes up. After a while, it's likely to get an ulcer. You're giving this rat a stress-related disease. You're giving it an ulcer. In the next cage, the second bar, is another rat. This rat is getting the same exact electric shocks, the same stressors, the same pattern, the same intensity. Everything is exactly the same for this rat, with one critical difference. Every time the rat gets shocked, it could run over to the other side of the cage where there's a bar of wood that it can gnaw on with its teeth. And that rat doesn't get an ulcer. It's got a hobby. Okay, next example. The third row. We've got a rat sitting there getting the same pattern of shocks, same exact everything, except this time, every time it gets shocked, it could run over to the other side of the cage where there's another rat it can sit down next to and bite the bejesus out of. Because that's exactly what the rat's going to do. And that rat isn't going to get an ulcer. The other guy's going to get plenty. This rat's not going to going to get an ulcer. It has an outlet for its frustration. Next critical variable. We have the rat sitting there getting the same physical stressor, the same electric shocks, but this time, 10 seconds before each shock, a little warning light goes on. And that rat doesn't get an ulcer. You're giving it predictive information. And predictive information helps because you're giving two types of feedback to the rat. You're giving it bad news. Uh-oh, here comes the shock. 10 seconds, 9 seconds, 8 seconds. In addition, you're giving it good news. The second that light is off, the rat knows it can relax for 10 seconds. A rat without a warning light, any second it could be a half second away from a shock. Predictive information makes physical stressors less stressful. We all know an example of this. You know, you're sitting there, you're in the dentist chair, the guy's drilling away in your teeth, it hurts, it's awful, you're whimpering, and finally you say, are we almost done? And you know the difference between the dentist that says, twice more and you're finished, and the dentist that says, I don't know, hard to tell with these things. I had a patient once, we had to drill their teeth for hours, that sort of thing. You don't know what's going on then. Two more times, bad news, you're not finished. Two more times, great news. Two more times, not 200 times. Predictability helps make stressors less stressful. Next example. This is a typo, not a level, but a lever. This is a rat that's been trained to hit a lever in order to decrease the likelihood of getting an electric shock. 
Today, the lever isn't working. You've disconnected it. It's a placebo. The lever's doing nothing, but the rat's sitting there pounding away on the lever, saying, thank God I've got this lever here. Just imagine if I weren't doing this. The rat doesn't get an ulcer because he thinks he has control. It doesn't matter if he does or not. For the same physical stressor, you're less likely to get a stress-related disease if you think you have control of the circumstance. Next variable. You've got two rats. One of them gets 10 shocks an hour. The other gets 50 shocks an hour. The next day, they both get shifted to 25. Who gets the ulcer? Not the guy getting 25. He's sitting there saying, 25, this is great, 25. I can handle this, this is wonderful. He thinks life's getting better. For the same exact physical stressor, if you interpret it as life is improving, you don't get a stress-related disease. Let me tell you about a very powerful, very poignant demonstration of this. This was a study done at Stanford in the early 1960s looking at the parents of children who had a 25% chance of dying of cancer. And amazingly enough, none of these parents had stress responses. How could that be? Your child has a 25% chance of dying of cancer. How could you not be having a massive stress response? because these were very special parents. These were parents who a month before, their children had a 90% chance of dying of cancer. This was when the children were in remission. Think about this. You have a totally healthy child, and one day, overnight, you go from a healthy child to cancer, 25% chance of dying. It's the worst nightmare a parent could imagine. On the other hand, if you go from a 90% chance of your child dying of cancer to 25, it must seem like the greatest miracle in the world. 25% means totally different things depending on if you're coming at it from zero or coming at it from 90. It's not just the stressor, it's psychologically what it means to you. Final variable, and these are studies not done with rats, but instead done with monkeys. Final variable, you take a monkey, and you put it in a big, new, empty cage. Monkeys don't like novelty. Their blood pressure goes up. Okay, take a monkey, put it in a big, empty cage, and fill it up with a bunch of other monkeys that it's never seen before. Blood pressure goes even higher. Take the monkey, put it in a cage with a bunch of monkeys it already knows and doesn't like. Blood pressure goes even higher. Take the monkey, put it in a brand new cage with a bunch of its friends, and its blood pressure doesn't go up. It helps to have friends. The single most powerful fact in all of behavioral medicine, when you look at all the infectious diseases across the board, the single biggest predictor of mortality when you look at lifestyle risk factors is if you were socially isolated. When you look at people at the extreme of social isolation versus social affiliation, threefold difference in the survival rates. And that's a bigger variable than if you smoke or not, if you are overweight or not, if you have elevated cholesterol levels or not. Social isolation for a social species is one of the most aching stressors you can ever have. The critical thing is this works after you control for the obvious stuff. People who are socially isolated, they don't have somebody to remind them to take their medicine. They don't have somebody to remind them, come on, that's not a decent meal, sit down, eat something warm, that sort of stuff. They've done the careful controls and they've controlled for that. Social isolation in and of itself is a risk factor and it turns on the stress response. What this winds up telling us is, for the exact same physical stressor, you are more likely to get a stress-related disease if you have no outlets, if you have no predictive information as to how bad the stressor is, if you have no sense of control, if you feel as if things are getting worse, and if you don't have somebody's shoulder to cry on. And this is everything of what stress management is about. In the same exact setting, in response to the same stressors in life, if you find ways to give people a sense of control. If you can't change this, at least you can decide the setting in which it occurs. At least you can get some control over when it happens, that sort of thing. Getting some outlets. If you're in a stressful stage of life, make sure you have a community of friends. Make sure you have close intimates, that sort of thing. If you can't change the stressor, at least get information as to when it's going to occur, how bad, when it finishes. All of these things are very, very powerful variables, and they have an enormous impact on physiology. 
And essentially what I think it teaches us in looking at this, when you've got the likelihood of a disease changing with this dramatic difference, simply depending on your psychological makeup, the psychological setting in which it's occurring, these are very, very powerful variables. And these are things that are absolutely essential for us as humans in the ways in which we are very, very uniquely human. We are uniquely smart enough to have invented all these stressors. And we're uniquely stupid enough to fall for them. Hopefully, we have the potential to be uniquely wise enough to keep them in perspective. So let me stop at this point, and good luck with that process. A grief compared to just anxiety, uh, which seems to be more troublesome to Question being, for different types of stressors, which one winds up being more troublesome? For example, grief versus anxiety. The cheap, simple answer to give is, it depends. It depends on how you feel about it. Which sounds like I'm being facetious, but that is the critical point with humans. There is no rule as to which stressors are more stressful than others once we get into the ones that are more psychological and more social. Some of us are absolutely amazing the things we can be hit over the head with that don't throw us off stride, whereas others of us are destroyed by that tremendous individual variation. You uh, base your presentation uh, almost and absolutely entirely on uh, the way diseases are induced by stress uh, without mentioning dietary factors, physiological anomalies, genetics, predispositions uh, to certain conditions, and all the other things that are contributory to disease. Wonderful point. Two caveats, two qualifiers I should put in there that will in fact address that. The first one is, it's in fact very rare that stress causes a disease. The much more likely thing is, stress worsens a pre-existing disease. That's the general picture in stress physiology. The other qualifier is a very subtle point which people initially don't pay much attention to but is in fact central to the thing that you brought up. The reality is stress doesn't make you sick. Stress makes you more likely to get diseases that make you sick. And that's a very important distinction. Western medicine is very, very good at looking at you and saying, well, you have these symptoms because you have this disease and here's what we're going to do about it, etc. You have these symptoms because you have this disease. What Western medicine is very bad at doing is saying, how come you got that disease? That it's very bad at. And most of that is the realm of individual differences, the genetics of how elastic your blood vessels are, how well your liver clears the lipoproteins out of the circulation, but it's also the genetics and the environment of whether or not a particular circumstance is stressful or not whether particular life events cause you to overeat as a neurotic response, causes you to take some health-impairing habits, things of that sort. We're very bad at saying why some of us get certain diseases and others don't. Tremendous individual variability. Exactly your point. Stress does not make us sick. Stress makes us more likely to get diseases that make us sick. That's the important real version of it. Thank you. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.